Thank you so much, Amal and Suda. Appreciate you leading us in that prayer. If you would, this morning turn to uh, Acts chapter 2. Not sure what I'm doing that might be doing that. Maybe that'll be better. Let's see. All right. Great. Okay, Acts chapter 2. And let's just pray, especially for our time in the Word, okay? Father, we are so very thankful that we can pray for the people of India. We're thankful that we can lift them up to you and ask for your mercy and grace upon them. Father, we're thankful that we can pray for our own people here in the U.S. and pray that you'd have mercy on us as a country as well. We thank that we can pray for our own hearts as we hear your word preached. This morning we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would receive your word to us, that we would know that it comes from a heart of love and mercy and grace and that we would see the truth about ourselves and, our, and the truth about you and that it would set us free to confess our own sin and to entrust ourselves to an able and willing Savior. So we thank you so much for this time. We thank you that we can worship you through this time in your word, and we commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, one of the interesting things about our culture right now is that many people, uh, not just Christians, have called our time the age of rage. And they've talked about rage culture and um, outrage culture and things like that to highlight the fact that we tend to be a society that is expressing rage and upset at other people in various ways. And it's interesting because um, the cure to that is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning, and that is the conviction of our own personal sin and actually seeing that it's not just other people that need to repent in various ways, but it's actually we ourselves need to see our own sin and therefore see Christ as well. It's interesting, in um, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Reformation Sunday, and, and um, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the uh, Wittenberg um, church door to start a debate, and the very first thing he mentioned on there was the fact that God actually calls his people, all believers, to a life of repentance, that repentance isn't simply something that happens when you come to Christ, it's something that happens throughout your Christian life, and at the very heart of repentance is a conviction of sin. So what we're going to be talking about this morning again is not something that's just simply for those who are coming to faith in Christ, but it's for all of us as Christians. And so what I'd like to do is just read verses 36 through 38 of Acts chapter 2 for us this morning. This is at the tail end of a message that Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and we will see how the people are responding to what he has said. In verse 36, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I'd like to do this morning is to make a connection for you that I think is very, very important. Um, In these verses, Peter's highlighting the fact that they are convicted of their sin in light of the fact that they have crucified Jesus. And what is behind all that is a rejection of God. At the very heart of their crucifixion of Jesus is a rejection of God and a breaking of the law of God. And it's important to understand that because the Bible tells us very clearly that it's the law of God that actually convicts us of sin. So somehow they must have seen that in their crucifixion of Jesus, they had rejected God and therefore they had broken the law of God, which is something that they had extolled as the Jewish people. The importance for us is in that we too need to see that we reject God as sinners And that rejection of God is seen in how we break the commandments of God. And therefore, we would have done the same thing they did to Jesus, except for the grace of God. So it's very important to realize that it's not just the Jewish people in the first century that crucified Jesus, and we're different from them. We need to understand that what they did was a rejection of God, rejection of the law of God, and it's only as we see our own rejection of God and the rejection of the law of God that we can see that we are no different than they are except by the grace of God. And so that's why I want to do something this morning that I hope will be helpful. I'm going to basically encourage us to consider this as I go through this this morning. Number one, the conviction of sin is important because it prepares us for the cure of Christ. We have to know we have a terminal illness before we're ready to actually give ourselves over to the remedy. The second thing is sin is essentially the rejection of God. It's really interesting. If you look at um, David in the Old Testament, you can see that in various ways. We are prone to resist the idea that we've really sinned or that we've sinned seriously, or that we really are rejecting God in our sin. And yet, if you look at David, who committed adultery and committed murder, adultery with Bathsheba had her husband Uriah murdered on the battlefield. He, after he did that, evidently was not living under great conviction of sin. He was just going on with his life until Nathan the prophet went to him, and you can see this in 2 Samuel 12, went to him and told him a story. The story was about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had all kinds of flocks and herds. The poor man uh, acquired a, a one little ewe lamb and took care of that lamb, and it became just like a daughter to him. And one day the rich man has a visitor come, And the rich man decides, I don't want to kill one of my many uh, lambs. I think I'll just take that one little ewe lamb of that poor man, slaughter him, and feed my guest. 
Well, David hears Nathan tell this story, and the Bible says David's anger burned greatly. And what he said was, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And what did Nathan say? You are the man. Up until that point, he wasn't convicted of his sin. He didn't really see that what he did deserved death. And that's exactly what God has to do with us. He has to open our eyes to see that our sin is serious. It deserves death. Because that's the only way we're going to apply ourselves to the cure, which is Christ. And beyond that, we need to see that David wasn't just convicted of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but in Psalm 51, if you notice, interestingly enough, what he says is in verse 4, to God, against you and you only I have sinned. Now, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? He wasn't denying that, but what he was doing was, I believe, if you look at Second uh, Samuel 12 closely, God tells David through the prophet Nathan, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house in light of your adultery and murder, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite to be your wife. So what does God say to David? Not that he had just uh, sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he says primarily, you have despised me. You have rejected me. That your sin is ultimately a rejection of me. The third thing I mentioned is the law is like, and when I say the law, I'm talking about the law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. The law is like ten canons aimed at our self-righteousness. Charles Spurgeon said, The Ten Commandments, like ten great pieces of canon, are pointed at you today, for you have broken all God's statutes and lived in the daily neglect of all his commands. So he says, The Ten Commandments are like ten canons pointed at each of us, pointed at our hearts, pointed at our self-righteousness. It says, says things like this. Our heart will justify us in the eyes of God by saying things like, how have I sinned against God? How have I rejected God? What have I done that's so bad? Why does God say that no one is good and or good enough to be accepted by him? Why do I deserve hell in light of my sin? Why do I need Jesus? The Ten Commandments are meant to shout down the lies of our heart that says, I haven't sinned or my sin isn't so bad or I haven't really rejected God uh, by what I've done. Interesting, Martin Luther again would actually, as a Christian, recite the Ten Commandments every day. And he encouraged believers to actually pray the commandments on a regular basis. And obviously in his catechism, he encouraged Christian parents to teach their children the commandments of God. And why is that? Because the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. Calvin said there are three reasons why God has given us the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws related to it. Number one, uh, it's to be a tutor, to lead us to Christ. It's for unbelievers. Number two, it's a restrainer for a moral society. And number three, it's a guide for believers to know what it is to love and please God. But with regard to the tutor, it says in Galatians 3.24, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So I'm going to try and do something in the next few minutes here. 
uh, that's just going to touch on each of these ten commandments, each of these ten canons, to help us see, hopefully in various ways, what God's standard is and how we all desperately need a Savior. If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 20 in light of that. Exodus chapter 20. And you can uh, look at this passage, even as I just briefly touch on each of these. We don't have a whole lot of time. But again, I want us to try to make a connection between the law of God and what was done to Jesus when he was crucified and how we, too, are reflecting that same kind of attitude toward Jesus in our own lives in various ways as sinners. Well, the first commandment is found in verse 3, where it says, God says to Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, before me is literally beyond me. There should be no one else that you treat as God. And what does it mean to treat someone as God? It means to look to them for the ultimate help you need, the ultimate happiness you long for, and therefore, in some sense, to trust them and obey them. In some sense, to let them shape your decisions and to shape your life because of how you're looking to them to meet your needs and to satisfy your soul. This commandment is about entertaining any competitor to God in our heart and in our life. And ultimately, it's a refusal to trust and obey God and God alone. That's exactly what the Jewish people did with regard to Jesus. He came and he said, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Which meant to say, I am the am of, I am of the Old Testament. I am God. And he was encouraging them to trust him and obey him. And they rejected him. It says in Mark chapter 8, Jesus taught that he was to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. They would not receive him even though he came to his own. The same kind of rejection of God is expressed in our own lives when we refuse to trust and obey Jesus ourselves. When we refuse to trust and obey God ourselves. Um, when we complain that he's not giving us what we want, like the Israelites complained about not having any meat in the wilderness, when we uh, don't want God to rule and reign over us, just like the Israelites didn't want God to reign over them, but wanted a king instead. And so whenever we fail to trust and obey God, we're rejecting God, And therefore, we're doing the same thing the Jews did with regard to Jesus. Even though he would say, I and the Father are one. However you respond to me is how you respond to God. The second commandment is in verse 4 of Exodus 20, where it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath. And it goes on from there. It says in verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them. And then it says... In verse 5 at the end, that this is an expression of those who hate God. And that's what I want to highlight is this commandment is very much about the idea of trying to make the invisible God visible or to replace the true God with another God in terms of something that you worship. And it's at its heart, it's a mystery 
representation of God. When they built or made the, the golden calf, what was the problem there? Well, you could say, well, calves or bulls or whatever it looked like can communicate the strength of God. So isn't that a good thing, to communicate the strength of God? Not if it leaves out a lot of other things. Not if it communicates nothing of his holiness, nothing of his love, nothing of his grace. You focus on one thing and you misrepresent the God that is revealed in the scriptures and revealed in Jesus. Jesus said that he came to reveal the Father to us. And interestingly enough, it says in John 15, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. They've seen me, they've seen the Father. They've hated me, they've hated the Father. Can you imagine that they saw God and they hated what they saw? Why? Because they wanted God to be different. Why do you make an idol of something else? Because you don't like what you see in God. You want God to be different. So whenever we reject God, we complain about God, um, we want God to be different, we're rejecting God. And that is the same thing the Jewish people were doing. In verse 7, God says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The idea of taking God's name in vain is the idea of lifting it up in an empty way. You could argue that that's like singing a song of praise with no praise in your heart. You could say that's like taking the name of Jesus and calling yourself a Christian, but not actually wanting to trust and please Jesus. Taking the name in vain. It's an attack on God's character because ultimately it's in various ways it's demeaning him. It's it's saying that uh, his name isn't worthy of our respect and honor and love and trust. Um, That's exactly what they did to Jesus. They called him a glutton. They called him a drunkard. They said he has a demon and is insane. Can you imagine God in the flesh walking among people and they're saying, that guy's insane. That guy has a demon, that, which means he's demonic. That is a clear rejection of the character of God being manifest to them. And how often do people look at God and see God as someone they would not want to know? They would not want to be around. They would not want to trust They see God as someone that they ultimately would not put their hope in. And that's the positive side of it, is that when we do not put our hope in God and his love, we are taking his name in vain in various ways, if we use it at all. If that taking up God's name isn't a reflection of our putting our trust in him, our hope in him, and believing that he loves us, then that is a violation of the heart of what this is all about. It's not simply about using curse words. It's much more than that. Because the Bible says God is love. That is his character. It says, in his name the Gentiles will hope. And it says in Psalm 33, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness who hope for his loving kindness. No matter what's going on, their hope is in that. 
The fourth commandment in verses 8 through 11 starts off by saying, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath, the word Sabbath is actually derived, they think, from a verb, which means to stop, to cease, or to rest. The Sabbath day is the stop day. The commandment is, at its heart, a command to cease your work and trust God. Cease your work and trust God. What happened in the life of Jesus? Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They looked at Jesus and said, You're a breaker of the Sabbath. You're not a fulfillment of the Sabbath. You will not lead us into rest. You will lead us into destruction. We will not trust you for rest. We do the same thing when we reject the provision that God has made in Jesus for rest. If you read the book of Hebrews, you you can see the book of Hebrews argues that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath day. He's the fulfillment of all that it pointed to. In Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, it says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Was it say in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. God says, trust me and stop your working. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to be good enough. And trust in the rest that I've provided through Jesus. The fifth commandment is in verse 12 where it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Which is obviously not simply about what you do. It's about a heart issue. Honor is something that goes on in your heart. But that translates into your actions, and it relates to all divinely appointed authorities. It it focuses here on the mother and the father, but it actually applies to every authority that God has established in this world. But the important thing to realize is when I submit to my mom and my dad, or I submit to the government, or I submit to other authorities, the Bible teaches that that is a submission as unto the Lord. Like it says in Ephesians 6, with goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men. And so that ultimately the the issue of this commandment, and most people believe that there were two tables, five on one and five on the other. Uh, The first five especially pointing to God, the, the last five especially pointing to our relationship with people. And so that there's a sense in which you could argue this whole issue of submission to mom and dad and submission to authority is really the issue of submission to God who has established those authorities over our lives. And in the life of Jesus, he said, I speak for God. My words are not my own. They're the fathers who sent me. And they refused to listen to what he said. They refused to submit to the authority of Jesus over their lives. The sixth commandment. Um, goes on to say, you shall not murder. What is that all about? The heart of that is that it's an attack on God and those made in the image of God. 
because in the Old Testament, God gives the uh, principle of capital punishment for those who murder based on the fact that they're made in the image of God. So that if I harm another person, I am attacking God. Why? Because they've been made in the image of God. So ultimately, murdering, harming, endangering another person who's made in the image of God is a rejection of God and an attack on God himself. And obviously, in the person of Jesus, we have both the one who is fully God and fully man. So they were attacking man, but they were attacking God even as they put him to death. But we have to understand that our relationship to others says something about our relationship to God. And if we harm others, then that's saying something about our own rejection of God. And when we think about the idea of, well, you know, would I have voted to put Jesus to death or not? If we live like it's okay if he's dead, yes, I would have. If I live like it's okay with me if he's not alive because I don't want him to rule over my life anyway, then that would say yes. I would have said yes if that's what it meant. It goes on in the seventh commandment to say you shall not commit adultery. Obviously, it's talking about the sacredness of marriage in this commandment. At the heart of it, it's talking about faithfulness. It's talking about faithfulness to your spouse in marriage. But the Bible also says that ultimately marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. It's a picture of God and and Israel in the Old Testament. The Bible says that uh, God is the husband of Israel. The New Testament says that Jesus is the bridegroom of his bride. So that ultimately my faithfulness to my spouse is meant to be an expression of my faithfulness to the greatest spouse of all, God who is the husband and Jesus who is the bridegroom. And so to not be faithful in this area is to not be faithful to the ultimate husband and the ultimate bridegroom. So another way to put it is if I don't pursue intimacy with God through Jesus, then I reject God. And if I don't submit to the boundaries that he's placed and the guidelines that he's given us for relationships, then I'm rejecting God too. All of that is a rejection of God. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. What is that all about? Taking what does not belong to us. How does that relate to Jesus? Well, he took his clothes and they um, divided them up among themselves when he was crucified, but much more and beyond that, The Bible says that they would not give him the honor that was due him. Rather, they wanted the honor for themselves. And that's why Jesus condemned them in Matthew 23 by saying, with regard to the leadership, the Pharisees, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Why? Because they were wanting the glory and the honor that only God deserves. So there's a sense in which uh, stealing is taking the goods that belong to someone else, which argues for private property. But even beyond that, uh, this command points to our relationship with God and says, am I taking credit for what God 
ought to only receive credit for. Is he truly receiving the glory in my heart and life, or am I receiving the glory for what he has given and what he has done? The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You're not to uh, lie in order to endanger others or give false evidence that would endanger others. The idea of pursuing another's good by speaking what is true about them. Um, It's the idea of not believing and sharing lies about those made in God's image and about God himself. They bore false testimony against Jesus when he was crucified, trying to find people who could agree so that they could make some semblance of a just trial before they put him to death. And they could not find uh, any testimony upon which they could put him to death. They lied about Jesus. They lied about God in the flesh. And when we believe things about God and say things about God that aren't true, we break this command, even when we do it when we talk about other people. Then finally, the 10th commandment says you shall not covet. And it mentions a number of things, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, etc., etc. At the heart of that is wrong desire. But even within that wrong desire is the idea of discontentment with God, with what God has given us or hasn't given us. The uh, religious leaders, uh, Pilate said, Uh, had delivered Jesus up because of envy. They wanted the praise and the honor from the people that he had received. They coveted the praise and the honor that the people were giving to Jesus. And as a result, they had a wrong desire, a discontentment with what God had given them versus what God was giving to Jesus and others. And so when we're discontent, Because of what we don't have and because of what others have, we reject God who is sovereign over what we have and what we don't have. Well, I need to wrap this up. And I just want to focus on two things that I think are at the heart of our rejection of God, our rejection of his love and our rejection of his offer of rest in Jesus. So I have two exhortations as we close Watch over your heart and don't take God's name in vain. And I want us to think about it in terms of um, putting our hope in God for his love for us. There's obviously the story in Daniel 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, we aren't going to fall down and worship your statue, Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, our God will deliver us. But they say, but even if he does not, Deliver us. We will not worship you. Oswald Chambers said about that, Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. So what is he saying? I may or may not get that deliverance that I want, that blessing that I want, that thing that I think I need or I'm looking to God for. But will I still love him even if he says no? Will I still love him and trust him and hope in him no matter what he decides 
to allow into my life, which is the encouragement, whatever God does, hope in God, hope in his love for us. Then finally, don't reject the rest God has provided. There's an interesting uh, account in the Old Testament where there's a man, if you, you can read it in Numbers 15, there's a man who is caught gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And the people bring him to Moses and they say, what do we do about this? This man is, was working on the Sabbath day. And Moses goes to God and God says to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Death because of picking up sticks. Is that really what was going on there? We look at that and say, God, isn't that kind of harsh? Isn't that kind of cruel? Isn't that kind of unreasonable? We can say that about a lot of things with regard to God saying, that's sin and it's worthy of death. That's sin and it's worthy of death. That's sin and it's worthy of death. And we say, but isn't it, is it really that bad? The sober truth of our sin is it's not what we do per se, but why we do it. It's not what we don't do per se, but why we don't do it. It's not about simply picking up sticks on a Saturday, but why we're picking up sticks on a Saturday when God told us not to. It's not simply about skipping church on a Sunday, but why we're skipping church on a Sunday. What does it say about our rejection of God? What does it say about our unbelief? What does it say about hatred toward God? What does it say about how we're putting other people in danger by our own actions and what we're doing. We need to see that, otherwise we won't. We'll look at stories like that and think, well, that God seems to be a little unreasonable, seems to be overreacting a little bit. Until we really understand what sin is, we will often respond that way. But once we see it as it is, we might be tempted to be overwhelmed with our sin, like Martin Luther was. And yet he came to a place of seeing the glory of Christ. And he came to a point where he said, Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. He's not encouraging people to sin. He's encouraging us to admit our sin, to confess our sin, to not be afraid to identify as a sinner. And at the same time, to rejoice and rest in an able and willing Savior for us. Because that's why Jesus came. He came to be a savior for sinners. That's why he would say, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned by the law for want of some sweet token, because I'm not obeying as I should, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. says in 1 John, and whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I'll trust in God's unchanging word, which is the good news of the gospel, till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. Do you see your sin like God sees your sin? Do I see my sin like God sees my sin? Do you see the Savior like he really is? Let me encourage you, trust him, rest in him, and be at peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the law has been given to us like ten cannons meant to attack our self-righteousness and show us the seriousness of our condition before you. 
but not to overwhelm us and not to condemn us, but to actually tutor us to Christ, to lead us to Christ, that we might see that we have an escape, we have a rescue in Jesus as an able and willing Savior for us. I pray that that would be the experience of every person here. And I pray that we, even as your people, would experience that in fresh new ways, even as we see our sin day by day and moment by moment. May we rejoice in an able and willing Savior for us. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. We love you and we thank you. Amen.